Today, Jay is going to be talking about covenantal distortions, and we're going to start with a reading from Genesis chapter 12 in the call of Abram or Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shem, to the oak of Moriah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word to us. Um, thank you for the history of your people and the history of you working with your people and calling your people out and being present with your people and this um, crazy, long, simple, complex, beautiful plan of redemption and creation and recreation that is all from your heart and mind. Uh, we pray today, God, that we would be able to listen to your word, that um, the words that Jay brings to us would drive us to your spirit and drive us to the foot of the cross and drive us to your scriptures to know more about who you are. So we bless Jay as he brings the word today. We ask that you would be glorified in it, um, that your people would be one, and that would glorify you um, as Father, Son, and Spirit. So we ask you to show us your glory, God, in both um, the spiritual realm and right here on earth. And we pray that um, your will would be done on earth as in heaven. Thanks for today. Thanks for gathering us together. Um, it's a blessing to be together, and we rejoice in you alone. We pray these things in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said, Amen. Good morning, Cornerstone. It's good to see all you folks this morning. I'm going to hop right into it. Um, so it's always a danger when a preacher asks his, his people, like, uh, do you remember when I taught on this? Um, so, because you're like, you sort of put your ego on the line. Um, but uh, this is a long one. If you could all just raise your hands when I, when I ask this question, that would make me feel a lot better. Um, this is a long time ago. Do you remember about, I don't know, this is probably, I think it's seven or eight years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, I taught a big, long series, uh, almost for the better part of a year, about um, what I called then the chain of relationships. Anybody remember that? All right, yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you all for that. And boy, every hand up. Let, let's pray and be done. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the chain of relationships. And um, at that point in time, I, uh, um, it, it was the idea of God orders our relationships for us. And by, by recognizing and um, honoring the order um, that he means for things to happen um, in our lives, then we can actually live in strength. If, if we don't, then it actually breaks things. And the idea of the illustration was a chain, uh, the first link being your relationship to the Lord 
And then um, if you're married, your relationship to your spouse. And if you have kids, your relationship to your children, um, your significant kingdom relationships. So, so core friendships, core brother-sister relationships, um, all of those things precede link number five, which is your, your calling and the relationship that God has to your calling, which means relationship comes before mission. Um, and a lot of the chain of relationships was teaching about how we as the church get out of balance by telling people to be missional before we tell them to be relational. And uh, so, so, like, get real busy for Jesus and be committed to God and, and, and live your life with, you know, a big, you know, on-fire commitment for Jesus. And then everything else in your life will make sense. Like, God will be happy with you. Your wife will be happy with you. Your kids will be happy with you. Your friendships will work, right? Except that when you become really missional before God, uh, your spouse, your children, or your significant kingdom relationships, it all fails. It all breaks. So the fact that calling is link number five is very important. Link number six was people who are directly affected by your calling. So you have a relationship with those people. Link number seven is people yet to be affected by, by your calling. So there are still people that you'll come in contact in, in your life that how you live today actually affects your relationship with them, even though you don't know them yet. Um, and the idea was that um, we live out of balance. Sometimes we, you know, our relationship with the Lord is a, a, a link that's, you know, like this, and our relationship to our friends is big and huge and stout, and, and, and when you get out of balance, the chain can't support itself, and, and, uh, and things start to break, and, and it doesn't work. Um, that's a quick review of a year's worth of teaching um, that, uh, yeah, I mean, heck, go back and listen to it if you want. There's probably some good stuff in there. However, I have rethought my chain of relationships, and I'm coming to you today with a reworked, more mature Jay McCumber, Lord willing, uh, teaching on the same concept from a different perspective. Because um, as I've been thinking about this, and uh, I've been thinking about this for, for a while, like reworking, um, I felt real solid in the teaching, but as I've grown more, and as I've engaged more leaders in different situations and um, in, in other churches and things, like I've seen, uh, I, the, the chain picture starts to fail. Um, uh, and because what I'm seeing is that things aren't breaking the way that they should. <laughs> so like I'm seeing a church or a person or a relationship that's clearly out of order, but the other things around it actually aren't breaking. And, and I, I, can't, I can't figure out, it's not exactly right, but it's also not, it's not, it's not broken the way, that, um, the way that I taught that it would be, which was interesting. And then, over the course of the last few years, uh, as you know at Cornerstone, we've been doing a lot of teaching, a lot of concept about, about covenant and what it means for us to be covenantal people, um, what it means for us to be a covenant community. And uh, the Lord has taught me over the last few years a lot about covenant to the point that, and I've taught this here before, that I believe that, our, that, that the Lord's government, the way that he brings himself to us, we specifically see this in the scriptures, is through his covenants. And he calls us to receive his covenants and then to live ourselves from his covenants so that his government is our government. The way that he administrates things is the way that we are living our lives. Um, and the chain of relationships, it, it was good then, but there's a fuller thing. There's, there's, there's a fuller concept. So I'm going to give you one teaching about this, about this new thing today. If you listen to the link to, to the uh, chain of relationships, 
and just apply this concept backward into that, it'll still make a lot of sense to you. Like, you'll be able to make the adjustments on your own or, or whatever. You don't need me to hold your hand through that. Uh, you folks are smart and love the Lord and can read your Bibles as well as anybody else. But the covenantal concept is where I want to go after today. So today I want to teach you about covenantal distortion. Let me hear you say covenantal distortion. Covenantal distortion is the new chain of relationships, the new and improved chain of relationships. And here is your picture for it. This is a telescope. This is a very cool, fancy telescope. Now, I am not an astronomer, nor am I the son of an astronomer. However, uh, I did dabble in uh, astronomy club for uh, about half of sixth grade with Mr. Rott and some other nerds in my class. <laughs> it was fascinating, and we learned all about refract, re, reflect, reflecting and refracting telescopes and things, but we never learned about the Smith-Casgrain telescope, and I'm sore at Mr. Rott for that, um, because the Smith-Casgrain telescope, now we may have not learned about it because this thing costs like 25 grand, uh, but regardless, this thing is going to uh, bring about the best pictures that you can find in space. The, our, best, our best telescopes tend to be patterned after the Smith-Cassegrain model. So if you see a big dome with a telescope sticking out of it in an observatory, it's probably going to be this model of, of a telescope. The beautiful thing about the Smith-Cassegrain telescope is that it lets in large amounts of light. You can see that because of the, the opening. So just imagine, I mean, a lot more light can get through this than can get through this. Um, and so the more light you can get in, the more opportunity there is for you to see things because, you know, these stars and heavenly bodies are shining and sending light this direction. So if we can catch that, and if we can somehow make sense of it, then we can, uh, we can see a whole lot more. The problem is, is nobody's eye is that big, right? Well, at least hopefully not. Um, if your eye is this big, you, you've really got a real gift. Um, so so all, all of that that, that, that whole thing right there is a lens. The, the whole big shebang is, is, is a lens. And all that light comes shooting in here. Now, I'm sorry that I could not find a higher resolution picture <coughs> of this schematic. So this, this will have to do. Um, but if you're a fellow nerd, you're just going to love this. This is great. So here's a schematic of a Smith-Cassegrain telescope. If you were to cut this thing open on, down the side and just sort of put the picture up there. So the light comes in. Through the, big, through the big opening, the big lens. Right? The light comes in, and it comes down, and it reflects off of this mirror. And it shoots back to this lens. What, what the heck? It shoots back to this, to this lens here, where it gets messed around with. And then it... That, that's the science word for it. That's the scientific word for it. Yeah. I'm going to do a PBS special. Um... <laughs> where it gets messed around with here, and then the light gets shot upside down through this lens, and then it gets shot through this lens, and then it hits this mirror where it gets turned right side up, and it gets shot back to this lens where you have the ability to fine-tune it. This, you can turn this little thing on the outside, and that uh, makes the image come into focus. All right, so the light comes in, bounce, gets twisted and messed around with, it comes through, it gets, it gets finer, it gets more finely tuned. By the time it hits number five, it's actually a, a, a viewable image. 
but it hits number six in the mirror, bounces, and then you bring it into focus. This number eight thing, don't worry about that. That's just so you can like sort of like, that, that, that's your finder. So you can sort of, the basic direction. Um, this, the Smith Cast Grain Telescope, is the picture of covenantal distortion. Now, the, uh, the, the telescope, if, like let's say we were out and we were, we were wanting to see a comet or, or something that was in the, the night sky, and we set up our Smith Cast Grain Telescope, and we were doing our thing, and, and suddenly, oh, clumsy me, I drop it. Well, that's A, it's worth 25 grand, so that's bad. B, um, you know, we, we, we're not going to open it up. So we set it up, and we hope that everything's okay. But man, darn it, when we go to look in that thing to bring it into focus, we just cannot get a clear picture. And, and there's no good reason why. The thing was working fine before. And the reason why is because, lo and behold, when I dropped, due to my clumsiness, the smith Cascrain Telescope, Oh, I didn't mean to do that. When I dropped it, what we, didn't, we, we, what we didn't know was that this lens here, number four, this magnifying lens here, number four, it actually just, I mean, it's only a half a degree, just bumped itself j- just a little bit, j- just a little bit offline. So the light was coming in just fine, and it was getting messed around with well. But when it hit number four... It just distorted the image enough so that as it went through the distorted image, it got distorted here, which means number five was actually receiving a distorted image that it was trying to correct, but it can't because number four was off. The mirror is not going to fix anything. It's just reflecting it. But the focus, even the focal point that my eye receives it from, it can't do the job because the image that it's receiving is already distorted. Just a little bit, but enough that you can't clearly see What's going on? Now, if I really did a number on this thing, right, and dropped this, and it hit a big rock or whatever, and lens number four actually broke and actually actually cracked, what it is that you're going to see is I massively distorted. Like, you'll see the fracture lines that come through because the image as it comes through, it's, it's so heavily distorted that you're really going to notice that something's really wrong. If number four, if the lens doesn't exist at all, then you know what you'll see when you look through the viewer? Absolutely nothing. Right? You'll see absolutely nothing. Because the way that the light works matters. This is a good illustration for covenantal distortion. Covenantal distortion is a shift, twist, or loss of a governing covenant in the life of a person that consciously or subliminally creates a loss of clarity, focus, or fulfillment in all subsequent covenants. Let's read this fun definition together. Covenantal distortion is a shift, twist, or loss of a governing covenant in the life of a person that consciously or subliminally creates a loss of clarity, focus, or fulfillment in all subsequent covenants. Covenantal distortion is a problem and a situation that I think that we all deal with just from simply from the fact that we're human. All right, so this isn't like a, a shameful thing. Like you, you, you will experience covenantal distortion. Uh, you will experience distortion in relationships. You will experience just things not, not being correct quite right or not being able to bring this friendship or or this parenting situation or this situation at work or at church 
um, this thing I'm trying to do for the Lord, like not being able to get good focus on it. And you know the clarity is there, and you're sitting there, and you're asking God, God, why don't I have clarity here? And oftentimes when we lose clarity in relationships, particularly, we go to the Lord, and we're like, Lord, fix this. And God looks back at us and goes, just put the lens back where it goes. Like, you moved it. Just put it back. And we're looking at God going, God, change this. And God's looking at us going, change it. <laughs> Covenantal distortion is this twisting, this loss. And, and, and the relationships and the covenants are finely tuned, much like a telescope. So that the picture that you're meant to see, that is the glory of God released through your relationships, which is the purpose for relationships, it just gets off. It just gets twisted some. What makes it worse is that covenantal distortion is something that you can get used to. Covenantal distortion is something that can just become easily, easily seen in our lives because, you know, like that, that lens gets off just a little bit. It's okay. I mean, I still see something. Yeah, I, I don't, I can't fully see the rings of Saturn, but there's pretty blurs there. So, so, so we can get used to that. And we sort of like, yeah, we just, it's all right. It's all right. And covenantal distortion, we're, we're meant to live full. That's what Jesus prays for. Right? He prays that we would be fullness of joy. John as well echoes it. Like fullness of joy, abundant life. But covenantal distortion can keep us from those things. And then we often end up settling for those things. So that if God means for us to live at 100, it's easy to settle for 75. And for that just to become, eh, here we are. But I would encourage us to think broader, stronger, and fuller than those things and to engage this concept of covenantal distortion and to think about it together because the distortion affects everything else. The shift, twist, or loss of the co- governing covenant in the life of a person, it, it, it either, sometimes it's just sin. Like, I am going to sin against the Lord. I'm going to sin against my wife. I'm going to sin against my coworker. Uh, you know, so we are consciously distorting the covenant. Sometimes it's just like this thing. It's a mistake. It's something that slips under the radar. We don't know it. We didn't see it. It's weird. And it just sort of, it just sort of happens. But it still has consequence. It, st- it still brings about a shift in the image that it is that we're, ho- we're hoping to see. And we lose clarity. We lose focus. And we lose fulfillment. Those are three big, uh, those are the three big casualties of covenantal distortion. We lose clarity in our relationships. We lose the focus of those relationships. Right? Or we lose the fulfillment in them. So there isn't, a, there isn't a feeling, the emotional satisfaction that you're meant to receive through relationships. And so covenantal distortion. Let's look at it from God's perspective of covenant first, and then we'll apply it to the governing covenants in our lives. So that's a key phrase here. Right? Governing covenants are like, what the heck? Um, we'll get there. No, we'll get there. Take your Bibles, uh, and um, you could turn to the text that Justin just read um, over us, Genesis chapter 12, please. I am neither a covenant theologian nor the son of a covenant theologian. And if you don't know what that means, you don't need to worry about it. But I do believe that God governs us by covenants, and I believe that God extends himself to his people through covenantal relationships. And I think that covenant... When you think about covenant and define covenant, um, Westminster Catechism 
defines covenant as an agreement between two or more persons, which is like a super crazily basic way to think about the depth and richness that is covenant in the scriptures. I think a fuller, I mean, certainly that's true. But a fuller dimension of covenant, a fuller dimension of covenant is the idea of God extending himself, his government, and his heart to his people. Right? Covenant is God extending himself, his government, his heart to his people. And he does that in a variety of ways down through the scriptures. He does that in a variety of ways down through the scriptures. And one of the chief ways, and we're not going to look at all the covenants that we see God make, but I do think this chain that I'm going to build for you um, is, is really important. Um, and so just... I want to be right up front with you. I'm not dealing with every covenant in the scriptures. I I am dealing with with what I think are key covenants in the scriptures as it relates to the concepts of covenantal distortion and the way that God would have us live in our relationships with one another and what it means for Jesus to be inserted into the middle of that. So, before you stay in Genesis 12, um, but before we get to Genesis 12, there is a covenant that oftentimes gets overlooked that we uh, forget about. Um, that we see in the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews to tell the Hebrews to stop being Hebrews. Hebrews are used to running their lives according to the covenant of God, and they keep linking themselves back to the covenant that we're about to read in the, in the Abrahamic covenant. Like, that's the source of God calling and naming and choosing to covenant with this people at this point in time. But there's a covenant that is beyond, before, and above any of the covenants that we see in Scripture. And the first covenant that we see is from Hebrews 13. It's called the eternal covenant, and we see it in the benediction. Now, again, Hebrews is written to the Hebrews to tell the Hebrews to stop being Hebrews. So the Abrahamic covenant, Moses' covenant, David's covenant, all of these things are rooted and grounded in the ancient Jewish mind. The writer of Hebrews, as he writes Hebrews, is rewriting all of that law So the sacrificial system is now fulfilled in Christ. The high priestly system is now fulfilled in Christ. The priestly system is now fulfilled through the church. The angels, they give glory to Christ. God the Father gives glory to Christ. This is about Jesus. Jesus is rewriting and restructuring all of the law that you have known. That law, that sacrificial system, that way of thinking about engaging God that's all been reworked in Jesus and then he ends the book by speaking about an eternal covenant and again this is a covenant that we overlook this is verse 20 now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So there is an eternal covenant that exists. The key to covenants is to understand that a covenant is about relationship. A covenant is about relationship. You cannot covenant with yourself, per se. I mean, you can agree within yourself that you're going to do or be something. Job says, I'll make a covenant with my eyes. But when it comes to, like, 
the way that covenants actually affect and work in the world around us, that there is an eternal covenant that exists that is held within Christ. It's the blood of the eternal covenant. Read the book of Ephesians chapter 1. We see that the lamb that was slain was slain before the foundation of the world. Right? So to be eternal is to be outside of time. To be, to be, to be held outside of time. Right? Everlasting means it goes forever. So everlasting life means your life begins and it never ends. Eternal means it's actually outside of time. So covenant, the eternal covenant that God has is the relational covenant that exists within himself. Father, Son, Spirit. They live in covenant together. They live in an agreement and an understanding about who each one is and exist for the purpose of being God in all situations. One God, right? We just sang it. The Lord is one. There is, there is one God who is revealed. We know him as Father, Son, and Spirit. And each one of those actually exists for the glory giving of the other. So you see Jesus on the earth, and Jesus is always saying, I'm not here to bring glory to myself. I'm here to bring glory to my Father. And then you see Jesus saying, the Son doesn't glorify himself, but the Father gives him glory. And they both exist to bring glory to the Holy Spirit, who is given by God, and who Jesus says, it's better for me to not be here, because you'll, then you'll receive the Spirit, who will lead you into all things. And so this, this covenantal relationship of the Godhead, whereby they exist in themselves with an understanding that they can't not be who they are. Everybody get that? The, the, God can't not be who he is. There are things that God cannot do. Right? He cannot sin. He cannot deny himself. He cannot split himself. He will not be divided. So, so this, this eternal Godhead exists in this covenant. That is the everlasting covenant. Right? That, that is the eternal covenant that's actually held outside of time. All covenants exist because God exists. All covenant exists because God exists. That's why every marriage, be it redemptive or irredemptive, is a reflection and says something about who God is. It speaks to that. It's a picture of that. So even the most basic covenant that we understand as humans, which is generally the marriage covenant, it's the one time that like, the word covenant is really thrown to the front, um, that all exists because of this eternal covenant. The eternal covenant is the umbrella God himself and the covenantal way that he engages and walks and works within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the umbrella by which all other covenants hang off of. The eternal covenant births what we see as in Scripture as one of the primary covenants, which is the Abrahamic covenant. I will make, this is verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the, what's the next word? What's the next word? All the families. It does not say people. It's an important distinction. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How are families held together? By covenant. Families are held together by covenant. God is making a covenant with Abraham that blesses and affects and has direct effect on 
all families of the earth and families are held together by covenant. There is a, there is a, it's deeper than agreement. A, a husband and wife don't have a baby and then say, so are we going to agree together to take care of this thing or what? Right? So, you know, poor parenting. Um, do, do we agree? Yeah, we agree. Okay. And then five years later, you know, I'm not into this agreement anymore. Can I get out of this contract? Sure. You know, just sign on the dotted line. I'll take, you know. Uh, unfortunately, though, that's oftentimes actually exactly what happens. Because rather than covenanting together, we begin to contract together. And you live up to your end of the bargain. I live up to my end of the bargain. And at the point that one of us doesn't like the way the other one is dealing with what we agreed upon, the agreed upon terms, then we can just cut it. And we can just pull out and move somewhere else. Covenant, covenant is deeper, stronger, fuller, broader, and it's because God in himself, the eternal covenant, covenant, governs all other covenants. And all other covenants become the governing covenants in our lives. I'll say it again. God himself is the bringer of the eternal covenant in and with who he is, Father, Son, and Spirit. The covenants that he then brings to us become our governing covenants so that the covenants that we all live in are governed by his. And I would suggest to you that every single relationship and every way that you engage your world is meant to be governed by one of his covenants that he calls you to. He says to Abraham here, all of the families of the earth will be blessed by you. I'm going to bless you in order to what? So that you can be happy and fulfilled? Nope. Bless you so you can be happy and fulfilled in order that you might be a channel of that. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And through you, all families of the earth will be blessed. We know the fulfillment of that is the fact that Jesus comes through the line of Abraham, which is a wonderful thing, and all families of the earth are certainly blessed. Because Jesus brings fuller, stronger revelation of the covenant of God. In Jeremiah 31, we see God give a new covenant. You can turn there, please. Jeremiah 31. God gives a new covenant, not because the first covenant wasn't strong or because the first covenant couldn't do what it was meant to do, but because the first covenant was bailed upon by the people who agreed. So God says to Moses, God says to Moses, you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your God, this is how this relationship works. And this relationship, it needs to work like this. And the people all go, yes, we will covenant with the Lord and we will be about what he has called us to be about. And literally, the next chapter, they're worshiping a golden calf. It's, it's that fast. The covenant that God makes with Moses is, is a properly legal covenant. God says to Moses, here is my law. And he gives Moses a tablet. And on the tablet are ten commandments. That's an important picture, by the way. Uh, we tend to think of uh, the ten commandments as being like, here's a stone, here's a stone, five here, and five here. Uh, nobody would ever write a contract like that. Right? Nobody would, let alone a covenant. So there, there's ten here, that's his copy, and there's ten here, and that's your copy. So here's your copy, here's his copy. 
And you both understand this is what you're, we're agreeing to. This is what we're covenanting to. Um, so, so here is the Ten Commandments, and here is God's law. Will we do these things? Yes, we will do these things. Where's Moses? He's up on the mountain. What are we going to do? God left us, even though he's right there, like the mountain's on fire. Um, it's right there. Uh, let's, we we, we got to find a God to worship. Let's, let's worship the golden calf, and let's have an orgy. Okay. All right, let's not get judgy of the Jews here. I mean, <laughs> I think we can all insert ourselves into different places in our lives where we've done that exact same thing. Not the exact same, you know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> like, whoa, Jay. <laughs> Easy, buddy. You don't know me that well. <laughs> it continually fails open. The covenant, the covenant that they make with God, God does not fail, they fail continually fails open to where God rewrites the covenant for them, which is what he says to them in Jeremiah 31, in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that who broke it? That they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law not on stone. I will put my law within them. I will write it not on tablets of stone. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. But they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will, I will remember their sin no more. I will remember their sin no more. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Key concept here that we'll come back around to, the new covenant brings forgiveness. The new covenant brings forgiveness. So God rewrites the covenant that they could not keep, and he, he, he makes it a new covenant, a strong covenant, one that he completely writes on our hearts. So rather than us following a list of something, and engaging in that way, we now have this thing actually imprinted within us. And the covenant that we engage to with the Lord is a covenant where he actually, he actually writes it on our hearts. He actually makes it an inward covenant. It's not outside of ourselves, it's internal. So the new covenant stands as a key marker, and everybody knows that the new covenant is going to be the beginning of the messianic age. So that when Jesus comes, he makes a really interesting declaration that I'm positing to you um, with like 80% surety, right? I was, I've been at 100% this whole time. I'm backing off to 80 right now. I'm pretty sure about this one. <laughs> the greatest commandment. Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew 22. Verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. All right, so the totality of the law and the prophets depend on this commandment. Now here's the interesting thing. You ready? Tablets of stone instructions to be followed, a covenant that is lined out 
and meant to be lived out. Exodus chapter 31 tells us that the greatest commandment in the law is keeping the Sabbath. There is a correct answer here when, when the Pharisees test Jesus. The right answer is you keep the Sabbath. Parenthetically, what do we always see Jesus doing? Breaking the Sabbath. So, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? When I look at all of the Torah, when I look at all the prophets, when I see all the commands of God, what's the greatest commandment? And the greatest commandment is keeping the Sabbath. Jesus takes this inst- these instructions, he takes these, the, 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 these covenantal lined out ways of doing things, and he changes it from being keeping this law to you shall love God. He changes it from the law that is meant to be instructions to be followed to a full relationship that is based in love. And in so doing, he completely reworks their minds. I mean, just it's, it, the, the amount of impact that is coming from Jesus rewriting the law here, and this is now becomes the great Jesus law. This is what Romans 8 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So Jesus, he's not not telling you to go, you know, run through a meadow of daisies, you know, skipping around, being so happy that you're going to heaven. I mean, he's he's still engaging real-time, real relationships in real ways. It's just that if you engage those things according to that law, that's the law of sin and death. But now there is a new law, and the new law is right here. He rewrites it. He takes that, all that stuff, and he doesn't say that's bad. He just says that it's fulfilled. And here's Jesus saying, now the great commandment is not keep the Sabbath. The great commandment is not, you know, don't take the Lord, uh, Lord's name in vain. The great commandment is not honoring your father and mother. All of those things are still true, and all those things are still wrapped up, but they're wrapped up in a deeper, fuller relationship. So the covenant that was that is now the covenant that is this. And still, all the families of the earth are being blessed. And still, God is in his eternal covenant, with him being fully him. And the new covenant is being realized, because the one who is the seal of the new covenant, which we'll talk about in just a little bit, has declared that all of that is wrapped up here, Love God. Love God first with everything in you. Secondly, love your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? You love your neighbor love yourself. I've taught you about that before. Right? That's sonship. That's sonship. That's not Freudian psychobabble. But if you don't see you the way God sees you, then you cannot walk in love toward your neighbors. The beauty of this rework is the freedom that comes with it and from it. And the greatest commandment, we see Jesus taking these instructions and building them into a relationship. So um, I was in Thailand recently, and I want to tell you another story about a situation that we engaged there. And uh, this is one of like, the last time I got in a fight was in college. Um. And that was because somebody like, was really offensive toward my wife while she wasn't around, and I lost my temper and, and got really angry, and, and I beat a guy up. I, I haven't felt like that in a long time. And I'm an Anabaptist now, so I'm actually not allowed to. Right? Um, 
You know, violence is not the answer. And we all know that. And you don't have to be Anabaptist to know that. That violence doesn't solve much of anything. Um, but this was the closest that I've ever been to uh, since then. So we were in a market one night doing some like souvenir shopping. And, we, and I turn around and there is this like 50-year-old uh, Westerner uh, guy um, who's uh, there with probably like a 12-year-old girl. And... Um, and he's being inappropriate toward her in a public setting. Like, it's not a, it's not a father-daughter kind of a thing. And the guy that we were with was like, this is, this is classic. Um, and I was like, well, I was like what, do you, what do you mean? This is classic. He's like, this is, this is what happens. This, this market is packed with people, folks. And this, this, this uh, guy and this uh, little girl were at a, um, a massage stand, right? And so there was, like, this massage taking place. And, and it was... It was so wrong on, on every level. And I, I said to the guy you're with, I was like, why isn't anybody doing anything? Like, this isn't hidden. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like this guy took this girl to a, a room somewhere. He was like, no, he actually bought her for the night. Like, and and this, is what they can, this is what they can do here. Um, I was like, what about when, like, what about when the person giving this guy a, a massage says, so is this your daughter? Or like, how old are you, honey? Those, those, he's like, they don't do that here. Um, I was like, what do you mean they don't do that here? That's insane. Like, there, there isn't some common sense of justice? He's like, that's the whole point. Is that no, there's not a common sense of justice. There, there, there isn't a way that this gets made right. That's exactly what the problem with, with the strongholds on this land Oh my gosh, you've got to be joking. Honestly, I'm, I'm watching the situation, and I, I have never been, I, since college, I have not been closer to actual physical violence. And, um, and I'm, I'm watching this situation, and I'm like, y- you are going to have to explain this to me, because I am at a loss for how common, just, just human dignity on either side, either the person who sees the girl and doesn't ask a question, you know, or the person who, or, or the person himself, like the perpetrator, or... And he was just like, you gotta, you gotta think about where we are. So, um, what what we learned, and what actually he had his, he had a friend of theirs. Um, she's a believer. She's Thai. She lived in California for ten years. Speaks great English, but she really understands the theology of both the the Buddhist culture and and uh, Christianity. Um, she was like, uh, you know, the the key to um, the key to Buddhism is nothingness. She goes, that, that, that's the ultimate place where you want to land, is where, where nothing matters, um, and where you become nothing, where all of your pain, all your suffering becomes nothing, but where then also all of your accomplishments and all your achievements and all your relationships, like those things all become nothing too. And then the great, the great goal of Buddhism is, is, is an eventual step into nothingness. And you actually get to that nothingness through karmic relationships with one another, and you get rebirth time after time until you're actually able to engage, engage enlightenment. And uh, she goes, the problem, the great problem with Buddhism is this cyclical nature of things that makes nothingness a core value of the people so that what happens just happens. And, and the phrase in Thailand is sabai sabai, which for us is sort of like, whatever will be, will be. You know, like, the, like but... Isn't this a horrible injustice against this little girl? Isn't this, isn't this like the worst thing that you can think of in your whole life? Sabai, sabai. Sabai, sabai, are you serious? Sabai, sabai, I'll punch your face off. You know, like, 
You've got to be joking. You know, and, and, and it's not because it's a cultural stronghold. It's a cultural iniquity that's become a part of the fabric of that land. And every Buddhist temple has the Buddha inside the picture and face of the stronghold of nothingness. And every one of those temples, as you walk up to it, is guarded by a dragon called the Nagal. Right? And this dragon, he's a, he's a lord of the underworld, lord of the sea. He's what the scriptures would call Leviathan. Right? And just like the scriptures teach us, like, like twisting and moving and strength. And so here's this nothingness guarded by, on the outside of the temple, this confusion. And these two strongholds work together to produce a culture that can look at a situation of deep and grave injustice and say, sabai, sabai. She said, um, the greatest the greatest detriment about uh, Buddhism is that there's no forgiveness. And when, when, when we heard that, we were just like, there's no forgiveness because there's no injustice. There's no, there's no forgiveness because something hasn't been done. Like there hasn't been wrong that's, that, needs to be, that needs to be forgiven. And it was sort of this, it was this massive cultural rework for me to think about, think about a world without forgiveness. Like, th- th- think about the idea and the concept of, of, of never being forgiven, of having to carry that kind of weight with you all the time. And, and whether or not you want to say that something went wrong or not doesn't remove the fact that governmentally, spiritually, legally, something actually did go wrong. Something, something is actually really bad in this situation. Like, the most obvious bad injustice that I've quite possibly ever seen. And yet the enemy and his destruction of covenant, that's what got destroyed there. How many covenants were being broken in that situation? Like, can, can you imagine? Like, let's say this guy was married. There's a broken covenant. He's certainly breaking his covenant to the Lord. He's breaking his covenant to his own children if he has any. And so he's breaking those covenants. He's breaking his covenant toward anybody that he's in common, respectful relationship with. He's breaking his covenant for being human. He's breaking his covenant toward her. He's breaking his covenant toward everyone in that market. I mean, every covenant that is just a common, normal way of engaging things has become distorted and broken because of the loss of the covenant to begin with. Because if there's one thing that God is not, it's nothing. Our God is everything. Right? So in the face of a God where the point is to become nothing, Jesus actually calls us into becoming completely fulfilled, fullness of life in Christ. That's what we're given. And that comes because Jesus is fullness of everything. And Jesus fills everything and made everything. And, and his core, his concept for covenant is himself, which is why the next great covenant that we see is the cup. So that when Jesus holds the cup up, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You've been waiting for this. You've been looking for this. You saw Jeremiah write about this. You saw yourselves failing openly. You yourselves fail openly at keeping a covenant with God that is worth keeping. But today things change because this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. And forgiveness is real. And offense is real. And you offend me, you offend one another. Your covenants, they fail openly all the time. The most intense ones, the biggest one, your Lord, your God, your spouse, your children, your brothers and sisters in Christ, the fact that God calls you to be something in the world, the people that affects, the people that you have yet to be affected by it, all of those things. Like you're going you're gonna to lose on all those levels. And when you do, I will catch you. Because my eternal covenant, my strong covenant, this covenant, this cup, is because not of your brokenness. This isn't filled with your blood that you're paying for yourself because you can't fix these covenants. You can't keep them from being distorted, but you don't need to because I have. And in me is everything. So this cup, this blood, my broken body, my spilled blood for you, this is the new covenant. This is the place, the only place where that kind of sin can be atoned for. Where we look at that heinous nature of that actual sin that I observed, you know, picture burned in the back of the mind, and the anger still rising up over this injustice. Who will pay for this? Jesus did. And that's what changes the world. Because in his blood is forgiveness. And we come together as people to the cup again, calling for God to align ourselves and our covenants with him and to bring his covenant to bear on the governing covenants that we ourselves experience, our covenant with Christ. First love. Priority above everything else. If you're married, your covenant to your spouse. A covenant of mutual honor and submission, seeking the glory of the other and understanding and coming under the mission of the other. Seeking their worth, their honor, mutually in all things. If you have children, you are covenanted to them. And as a parent, it is your role in that covenant for nurture, training, discipline. We live together in covenantal community, significant kingdom relationships. You know, I'm not just talking about your acquaintances. I'm talking about the people that you can't make it without. You know, maybe those people are your family. Maybe they're not. They're probably not. Sometimes God gives that bridge. Sometimes he doesn't. But significant spiritual family, the people that, that, that God uses to bolster and strengthen you like few others can. We live in covenant with those people, pursuing Christ together in all things. We can sit there and pontificate till we're blue in the face. What does God have to say in this relationship? And what does it mean for me to see sin in my brother's life or does him to see sin in mine and for us to walk in the covenant of grace together in that? Covenantal calling walking in your personal mission. You were put here for a reason and only you can be you in this world. And you're the only you that has ever existed and will ever exist. And your contribution to this thing matters. We can bail on that all the time. Covenantal friendships, living in honor and love toward all your friends. The covenantal distortion that happens, it happens so easily, it happens so swiftly. The covenantal distortion that I experienced in this that view in Thailand, that was like... It was a drop of the telescope that broke the whole thing, you know, broken on every level. 
but it is also so easy for us to shift and to, to have something fail and have something broke. And we can take that telescope apart, but you know what happens? You know what it's like in there if you take a smith Cassegrain telescope apart? <laughs> it's quite complicated. And the amount of fine-tuning it takes to put things back in line so that things are actually clear again, it is impossible. That's why computers do it for them. It's a good illustration for us as well. Have you ever tried to realign yourself? How does that go for you? You know, when our, when our relationships get distorted and they get aligned, when they just break and fail completely, there's one who actually is the fine tuner. He's actually the maker of the telescope. He's actually the maker of the whole universe that the telescope sees. He's the one who holds us in his hands, and he's the one who is the everything. And in the face of the nothingness that wants to tell us that forgiveness and redemption and grace and mercy and those things are not real, he is the one who stands and says, actually, you just need the better covenant in this cup that we're now going to take together. This cup is the new covenant in his blood. So as we come together for communion, let's remember and let's engage, let's embody, let's do more than intellectualize our memories. But as we come, we come with an understanding that this covenant is the covenant. We partake in the cup of the new covenant that is brought to us by a person who is in the eternal covenant and who gives us his blood, who gives us his broken body. And that brokenness and that blood covers all sin. It covers that offense that horror and that, that little girl herself is held in the blood and love of Christ. We don't see it, we don't understand it, we don't get it, and we sure as heck don't know how to fix it. But he is the everything. Where else can we go? And we come together, and we together declare that we are his, and he is ours. And it's his covenant that governs us and nothing else. Thank you, Jesus, for this cup, the new covenant in your blood. We receive you again as the people of God. And together, we look to experience, to know, and to be about the life, goodness, and grace of our Lord, of our Savior, of our Jesus. And in that covenantal way, we approach you now aware of who you are, but also completely oblivious fully of who you are. You know, the more we know, the more we know we don't know. So God, would you deepen our experience of our covenantal relationship with you as we partake in this time together, the cup of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your restoration. In Jesus' name, amen. So, receive the benediction today from the Lord. And with the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, 
equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.